0: Thank you for being here this morning. It is, uh, I think it's an important subject that we're looking at here. Hopefully we'll do it justice as we think together about what this means. I don't know whether the title is uh, appealing to you or confusing to you. I'll explain what that means in a moment, but just to say something about who I am. So this is just a a little bit about who I am. The bio is in the the handbook as well. Uh, I am a medical doctor. I don't practice medicine at the moment, so don't come to me for medical advice. But I am a medical doctor uh, by training, by experience, and that's still very much part of how I approach some of the issues, particularly tomorrow and on Friday when I'll be thinking about specific issues. Uh, I've also got a a, a bachelor's degree in medical genetics, um, which gives me a bit of an interest particularly with the issues of life. Uh, And then I've been a pastor both within our own culture here and also cross-culturally with the Chinese community here in Northern Ireland. I am a a theologian and an educator, Uh, that's the more recent part of what I've been doing, as Gordon has mentioned, but I'm also a husband and a father, and I think sometimes it's as a father, uh, as a parent, as a grandparent, as a potential parent in the future, as a brother, sister that some of the issues that we're thinking about over these mornings really hit home uh, and confront us. So, you know, I'm, I'm part of that as well, approaching these things in relationship. And as somebody who's trying to think, how do I teach my children? How do I help to bring them up? Uh, and really, I suppose what I want to do and what I'm seeking to do is to say, what does it mean to have a consistently biblical worldview or, or understanding of life and of the world? What does it mean for us to, to really approach these things from, from a world and a perspective that says it's, it's what God has said, what God has revealed to us, that shapes how we understand our life and the world that we live in? That's my passion to try and say what does it mean to be faithful to that and that's what i want to try and lay some foundations for this morning and then as i said you may or may not be here in the next couple of mornings but we'll look at specific issues gender and sexuality tomorrow and then on friday uh, some of early and end of life ethics issues the issues around abortion assisted dying those kind of issues So what I want to do this morning is is really in in four parts. And the fourth part is time for questions and answers. Hopefully we'll have some time for that at the end. You might be able to read from there the the little web link that's there. The slides for these three mornings are all online on that page. So rather than print out handouts, you can download that, you can print them out, or you can just keep them on your computer, whatever. So it's paulcoulter.net forward sober. Don't go to paulcolternet forward drunk. You don't want to see uh, that uh, phenomenon, but uh, paulcolternet forward slash sober, that's where you can find it. So I'll put that up at the end again to remind you. So first of all, I want to I explain what I mean by sober minds and muddled word, world. Then I want to think about four directions of sobriety. I'll explain what that means as we come to it. And then four faithful responses. How do we respond to the issues we see and the people we meet in the world that we live in? So sober minds in a muddled world, first of all. Now, when I came up with this title, muddled world, I thought that this was a a new phrase. And then I, I did a little Google, as you do, and I realized that a couple of people have used it before. Winston Churchill being one of those, he said, what is the, apparently said, what is the use of living if it be not to strive for noble causes, I should do the voice, shouldn't I, but I can't, so, and to make this muddled world a better place for those who will live in it after we are gone. That sounds very noble. Uh, I'm not saying that inspired me. Maybe I'd heard that somewhere. I don't know. But it's probably more likely I'll let you decide whether it was Winston Churchill or Enid Blyton who influenced me. But (laughs) Enid Blyton, the children's author, also uses this phrase in one of her books. And she says, or one of her characters says, You're honest enough by nature to be able to see and judge your own self clearly. And that is a great thing. Never lose that honesty, Bobby. Always uh, be honest with yourself, know your own motives, and you will be a fine, strong character of some real use in this muddled world of ours. So again, at very different ends of the spectrum, Winston Churchill, Enid Blyton some years ago calling it a muddled world, and things haven't got any clearer, have they? So I I think all of us would probably say that the world seems to be muddled or confusing, not least for people who are Christians increasingly so, the world that we live in, in today. So I, I don't think I need to make much of a case for, for the fact that we live in a muddled world. How do we respond, keep calm and stay sober? A few months ago, I think it is probably now, my daughter out of the blue, eight-year-old, said at the dinner table, Daddy, what's it like to be drunk? So I did what every responsible father does in that situation and said, ask your mother, uh, <laughs> that's not a slur on my wife but she yes what, what's it like to be drunk now I don't know if you've been drunk uh, you might have got this far in your life without having that experience and I don't think you've missed anything but a drunken person has certain qualities they don't think clearly they don't see the world the way it really is they don't they don't make good judgments about how they should act. In fact, quite often there's bravado, there's lack of clarity, there are poor judgments. And so behind this idea of sobriety, when when the Bible uses this word, and it does use this word sober-minded, it's not hard to, to see what it's really talking about. As Christians, we should think clearly, we should make good judgments, we should respond with clarity to the issues that we see around us. Now what I'm going to talk about this morning is based around First Peter. And if we'd more time, we could really look in depth at that book, but I'll make a lot of references to it. But First Peter begins, and the starting point for Peter in that letter, it's right at the very beginning of the letter, chapter one verses three to five. it begins with the gospel. It begins with the living hope that we have through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. It begins with the heart of who Jesus is, what he has accomplished through his death and his resurrection. And the inheritance, you notice how Peter puts that, it's a living hope because Jesus is alive and we have an imperishable, undefiled, unfading inheritance kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith, For a salvation that is to be revealed. There's the perspective that Peter begins with. And it's a key thing for sober thinking. To understand that this world as we experience it now is not the ultimate reality. And it's not our ultimate destiny. That groundedness in the gospel that says what has transformed and made all the difference is Jesus and what he has done. And that has made all the difference, not just in this life, although it does, but also for eternity. So an eternal perspective, a heavenly perspective, if you like. A perspective that says, the thing that is of greatest value is actually the inheritance that is stored up for me. Now that puts life in in a particular perspective because we all face challenges intellectually, yes, but also emotionally, relationally, all sorts of challenges in our faith, but Peter is grinding us and saying, actually, where this is all going to is a very good future. It's a very good future that is guarded for us, kept for us because of what Christ has accomplished on the cross. So I, I want to lay that foundation and say this is about the gospel. And it's the gospel, the good news, that centers on Christ crucified and risen And everything that I'm going to say is framed within that, within this true story, this reality, the truth behind our world, that however muddled it might look, God is actually in control and is working out his purpose, and his purpose is to bring his people to a glorious future. Okay? That's the starting point. But Peter uses this phrase sober-minded three times in this little letter. He says preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded and the word that he uses it is the same kind of word that you would use for somebody who isn't drunk it is just that that word sober so somebody is sober-minded set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ soberness has got to do with being ready being prepared for action a sober-minded person is prepared to act, okay? So yes, our salvation is stored up for us, but we don't just sit around and wait for the next bus to heaven. We get active in the world in response to the hope that we have in Christ. But it's the hope of heaven and the confidence of heaven that drives us as we do that, you see? So our minds are ready for action. Actually, the, the, the word that Peter uses is your, your loins gird up. It's a good Old Testament image, right? You're ready to move. You're on the move here. Soberness is about being ready. Later on in the letter, he says, the end of all things is at hand. You see again this focus on on where history is going to. Be self-controlled and sober-minded. So being sober-minded is about being self-controlled. That's quite obvious. A drunk person is not self-controlled. Christians ought to be self-controlled. So part of soberness is being able to control our own desires and our own thinking. And then thirdly, at the very end of the letter, he says, your, your adversary, the devil, prowls around. He's seeking to devour someone. So resist him firm in your faith. So sober-mindedness is about being aware. Now, in some ways, those actually are in reverse. And when we apply this to the issues tomorrow and on Friday, I'll approach this in reverse. On these issues, we need to be aware. We need to be aware of what's going on in our world and aware of the spiritual dynamic that's behind that, that Satan is at work, that he wants to deceive, that he wants to entrap, that he wants to destroy. We need to be aware. We also need to be self-controlled. So we need to apply this stuff to ourselves. How am I living and acting? And then we need to be prepared for action. What are we going to do about this? Not enough to just know what we think about it. How are we going to respond when we face people who are struggling with the issues we're talking about, when we encounter people. So that's that's the approach we're going to take, particularly tomorrow and Friday. So that's what I mean by sober-minded, being aware, being self-controlled, and being ready for action. What about this sobriety in four directions? What do I mean by that? Well, there's one verse in 1 Peter Chapter 2, verse 17, that I think is a spirit-inspired work of genius. The whole scriptures are. But this verse is beautiful in its simplicity and yet in, in how profound it is. Just look at what Peter said. Now, unfortunately, the place that you're most likely to have heard this verse or seen it in Northern Ireland might be on a little arch over the roadway. It's one of those verses that gets uh, plastered up there sometimes. But, but Peter says, honour everyone. Love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. That's the English Standard Version. Different versions will translate that slightly differently. So the King James says, uh, honor the king. That's where that tends to get up on the arches and so on. Now just look at what Peter is saying here. Four things, four core responsibilities that I think the rest of his letter builds on that we as Christians need to do. And you know, that's not, four things is not really that hard to remember. But, but when you look at this, two of these things are relationships with people alongside us, okay? Honor everyone and love the brotherhood, our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Two of them are to do with relationships in which we are beneath. One of those is God, fear God. And honor the emperor or the authorities. We don't have an emperor unless things have changed since yesterday when I last looked at the news. But we do have authorities who are over us. And so you see the beside and beneath. Do you see that dynamic? But also there's inside and outside if you want to call it that. The two central things are love the brotherhood and fear God. That's inside the family of faith. And then outside that, you have honor everyone and honor the emperor. Now, you notice the way Peter, uh, by the Spirit, constructs this verse. That the inside things are at the center, at the heart. And the outside things are on either side of that. So that's why I think this is an absolute work of genius. I think it's a simple uh, guide that kind of summarizes everything else that Peter says, as I'll explain in a minute. Now, I kind of then, and you may or may not find this helpful, but I, I try to think, what does this look like if I try and draw it out? So, I've drawn a line that says beneath and beside, and then I'm going to put arrows that say inside and outside, and that lets me put honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the emperor or the authorities. Four core responsibilities. Four things that I need to be sober-minded about, that I need to think clearly about. What does this mean? But also, if you, if you look at it this way, you, you start to think, well, yeah, I have to fear God and honor the emperor. What happens if those two things conflict with each other? Do I, do I honor the authorities or do I fear God? Or is it possible in all situations to do both? Now, that becomes more of an issue if you're in the kind of context that Peter's writing into, which is people in a, in a, under a pagan emperor, a, a non-Christian culture and society, or the kind of world that we are increasingly living in, where the authorities aren't necessarily enshrining Christian principles. So how do we, how do we live with that tension? Or what about fearing God and honouring everyone? How do we honour people while staying true to God? What about loving the church and honouring everyone? Well, how do those two interface? Why does Peter single out the church for love and others for honour? What about honouring the emperor and loving the brotherhood? What does that mean? Loyalty to the church as opposed to to the state. So there's all sorts of questions and tensions. And of course, we're going to have to look at the rest of 1 Peter to think some of those things through. So what do these four things mean? Well, the first direction I'm going to start with is fearing God. Now, you might kind of think that's a strange choice of words. Fear God. Why doesn't he say worship God, love God? Isn't that the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. Why does Peter use the word Fear God. And it's not just in chapter 2, verse 17. In chapter 1, verse 17, he, he says it like this. He says, if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So he's talking to Christians. He's saying, you don't belong in this world because remember, it's going towards heaven. You're exiles in the world. You conduct yourselves with fear Now, that's that's not kind of the message you wanted to hear this morning, go and be afraid, right? But it's not, it doesn't say go and be afraid. When it says conduct yourselves with fear, it means the fear of God. That's what chapter 2 explains for us. It's fearing God. Jerry Bridges wrote a book called The Joy of Fearing God. And in it, he says, there was a time when committed Christians were known as God-fearing people. I don't know if that's primarily in the States or here. You've heard that phrase, I'm sure. This was a badge of honor. It's not something we really talk about nowadays. And of course, the scriptures have a lot to say, with that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The Proverbs and Psalms, all the wisdom books say that. Wisdom begins with fearing God. That kind of draws me to to C.S. Lewis and his depiction of Aslan in in the Chronicles of Narnia. You're probably familiar with in The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, the little statement where Mr. Beaver is asked, he's a lion, is he safe? And Mr. Beaver responds, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. It's a, it's a beautiful kind of description of, of Jesus, isn't it? Of, of God, have we domesticated God, lessened him to such a degree that we no longer think of him as the judge, To go back to what Peter said. Notice what Peter said. He said, your father who judges impartially. For Peter, there's no contradiction between the father heart of God, the loving heart of God, and the judgment of God. The fact that God has an opinion on stuff. The fact that you will answer to him for how you have lived. In fact, for Peter, those two things belong together. This is your father who judges. Now, that's who God is. Have we lessened him? Another one of the Chronicles of Narnia, I think it's Prince Caspian, maybe I just can't remember, but but there's a beautiful description of, of, of this and the, the children are following Aslan and it says, now Aslan had stopped and turned and f- stood facing them, looking so majestic that they felt as glad as anyone can who feels afraid and as afraid as anyone can who feels glad. It, it's this paradox, if you want to call it that, of the mystery of the fear of God and the the gladness and the joy that seeing the glory and the majesty of God uh, brings in us. And maybe one of our problems as we face the challenges of the world we live in is that our God is too small. We've lost sight of the glory and the majesty of God, the holiness of God. We need to think more deeply about that. And as we do, it leads us to fear God. And as we fear God, as Oswald Chambers says, the remarkable thing about God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. Fear is a very, very powerful thing. It's a powerful thing as we go into the issues of the age, but it's also a powerful thing deeply in our emotional life. And if you've struggled in your in your mental health and so on, you, you may well know how paralyzing fear can be. But the fear of God is not being afraid of God because he's unpredictable. It's not being afraid of God because we don't know who God is and any, any moment he might strike us down and he's out to get us and, you know, you, you're sort of tipped tiptoeing around, treading on eggshells. God has revealed who he is. He's revealed what is true and what is right. And he calls us to trust in him and to obey him and to fear only him. And as you come into that fear and you experience the perfect love of God that casts out fear, it gives you a confidence in your faith and in your life that means I don't need to be afraid of anything else. Nothing else can threaten me because I am in the hands of God. That is a wonderfully liberating thing. G.K. Chesterton said something similar. He said, we fear men so much because we fear God so little. One fear cures another. When man's terror scares you, turn your thoughts to the wrath of God. That's what Jesus said. He said, don't fear those who can harm your body, but the one who can judge your soul. So fearing God is the beginning of wisdom. It's also the beginning of freedom from fear of others. Now, why am I laboring that? I'm not going to maybe say so much about some of the other points. I'm laboring it because I think we've lost it a bit. But also I want you to see that this word fear comes up in a few other places in 1 Peter. But we don't always see it because our Bible translators in their wisdom have translated the same word, which is phobos. It's where we get phobia from. But they've translated it in different ways elsewhere. One of the ways they've translated It is respect. And I think that's unfortunate. It's unfortunate for two reasons. One, because it loses sight of who we're fearing. When I read the word respect, servants be subject to your masters with respect. Respect for my master. If I read the second verse, have no fear of of the people who threaten you. But honor Christ the Lord as holy. Be prepared to give it, make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Respect for who? Actually, what Peter says is, be subject to your masters with all fear. That's the word that he uses. And again, do it with gentleness and fear. Now the reason the translators have changed it to respect is because they don't want you to think that you're meant to be afraid of your master or afraid of the people who threaten you because you're not and the context makes that clear. But we've got to read those verses in the context of 1 Peter. We're to fear who? Fear God. And it's fearing God. We do this with gentleness towards others and the fear of God Because when we lose one or other of those and we become all about gentleness to people, but we forget the fear of God, we end up compromising what is true. And when we do that, we end up compromising what is actually good for that person as well. Of course, if we lost gentleness and we just all became about putting the fear of God into people, then we would also be ineffective. We wouldn't be commending Christ, would we? We wouldn't be representing his character and the character of God. So gentleness and fear of God. Gentleness towards the other and fear of God. Likewise, masters are, are slaves towards your masters, people towards your employers, if you like, you don't have to respect them, but you do have to fear God and you do have to be subject to them. I'll come back to that idea of subjection in a minute. Let's think about the second direction. So the first direction, fear God. Secondly, love the brotherhood. Peter says this again in chapter one, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Response to the gospel leads to love for one another. Jesus said that, this is the new command I give you. And if we do not love our brothers and sisters in Christ, there is something wrong in our love of God or our fear of God as well. Because if we're really fearing God and loving God, we will love his people. The gospel leads to a sincere love for others. And because we have a sincere love, we need to earnestly love one another. Now, when we talk about love, of course, and then we're talking about fearing God and holding on to truth, that raises all sorts of questions. How do I do that? But let's look at how Peter defines love. For that, just to say, Tertullian was one of the earliest Christian apologists as you might call him, one of the earliest Christian theologians to really seriously make a defense of the Christian faith in the, in the intellectual world that he lived in. And this is one of his famous sayings. When he was speaking to skeptics he said to them, look, see how they love one another. He was able to point at the church and say, look at how Christians love each other. Now, sadly, I think that's probably one of the last things we would say in our context at times. And we've got to sort this issue out. We've got to learn what it means to love one another earnestly, deeply, committedly, sticking with one another. We've got to learn what it means to do that across generations, across secondary theological differences, but in truth. Because true love is always in the truth. But we've got to figure this out because we've got to show the world the love that we have for each other that is a testimony to the love of God for us. But how does Peter define this love? He says, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart and a humble mind. Notice what he says there. He does say, yes, be tender, be sympathetic, feel for one another, be tender to one another. But he also says, have unity of mind. In other words, love is not in conflict with unity of the mind. Secondly, he says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. And thirdly, greet one another with a kiss of love. Not doing that, Gordon. He didn't greet me with that this morning, but you can do that on the way out if you like. What is, what is Peter saying in these verses about the nature of our love for each other? Well, first of all, it's about unity in the truth. It is not love at the expense of truth. Do you see that? Unity is never just unity in the spirit. In chapter 4 of Ephesians, it's unity in the spirit leading towards unity in the faith. And unity in love is a unity that seeks truth. Do Do you see? Otherwise, it's not genuine love. It's not really loving to somebody if you're allowing them and encouraging them and helping them to live in a myth. A false world. A world that is in denial about what is really true and what God thinks. So we must be clear about this. That love includes, of course it also includes tenderness and sympathy. Let's never forget that. But love is also about forgiveness. Covering a multitude of sins doesn't mean covering them up. The church is not a place where sins should be covered up. Hidden you know, abuse scandals, whatever it might be. The church doesn't do that. It doesn't hide it, but it forgives. And the unity of the church in love can only be based on the readiness to forgive where people have wronged us and where they have lived lifestyles that are unfaithful, but have repented and come to faith. Forgiveness matters. Are we loving in the way that is just longing for that person to come back in? Not standing in judgment over them, condemning them, excluding them, but wanting to bring them back in. But realizing we can only do that when we have unity of mind. And then thirdly, this unity is about acceptance. But you notice it has to be all of these. It doesn't make sense to talk about an accepting, welcoming, inclusive church if that doesn't include a commitment to growing towards truth and maintaining unity of mind and remembering that we fear God as well as loving each other. So love the brotherhood, love love our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we'll not read this, but you can take the reference, it's in the slides on the internet, but Peter says a lot about what the church is but more importantly about why the church matters. He says in the blue bit there that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness. How does the world see the glory of God? How does the world see the wisdom of God? How does the world see the reality of the gospel? It is in the church that loves one another with a committed love in the truth. The church displays the wisdom of God, not because it's perfect and hides sin or pretends that it doesn't have sin, but because sinners come together to give praise to a great Savior and to seek God's truth. And I just want to say, this is not just about your little fellowship in your little place, and Peter doesn't leave it there either. Because he says at the end of the letter, The same kinds of suffering that you're experiencing are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. It's the same word that he used in chapter 2, love the brotherhood. He says your brotherhood is worldwide. Sometimes we reduce that love and we think it's just about my congregation or my denomination or my tradition. It's a love for the whole church worldwide that seeks unity. So in other words, when we're faced with challenges in the West... And our temptation is to say we need to put all our resource into mission here. We mustn't lose sight of the fact that we have a responsibility to our brothers and sisters elsewhere. And they also have something to teach us. So local mission and global mission belong together. Local unity and global unity in love and in truth. Okay, thirdly, we'll rattle on. Honor the emperor. Be subject, Peter says, for the Lord's sake to every human institution. You notice that fearing God for the Lord's sake, you are subject to the human institutions that God has put in place because they are sent by him, it says, to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. And you say, but hang on, the government doesn't always do that. Sometimes it punishes those who do good and praises those who do evil. Now, Peter's not naive and unaware of that, but what he's telling us, and Paul does the same thing in Romans, is that the state will answer to God. And those in authority will answer to God, your responsibility is to be subject to them. Now, again, that does not mean that Christians always do everything the state says. Peter and John in Acts, when they were confronted by the Sanhedrin, said we have to serve God, not men. They subjected themselves to the judgment and the the, uh, punishment that the Sanhedrin gave them. So they were subject, but they still testified to the truth, you see. But being subject means that you respect authority. Christians are not revolutionaries. We're not subversive in a destructive sense, but we have a very subversive message and we declare subversive truth. And then fourthly, honor everyone. Now at this point, I just need to say that in most of your Bibles, it won't say honor everyone in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 17. Most of your Bibles will say respect everyone. But the word that Peter uses is exactly the same word that he uses for the emperor. It's honor the emperor, honor everyone. And I think it's an important difference, and I'll explain why in a second. But how do we honor people? Well, there's a really basic principle in the New Testament, and it's there in lots of the letters that says do good. Do good. Do what is good for others. Bless them. Seek their good. Now, of course, The challenges come when your understanding of what is good for them based on fearing God is different from their own. But if Christians were known as people, and I think actually by and large we are at a local level relationally, let's not put ourselves down, who do good, who are good people, who are people who care about others, who seek what is genuinely good for others. It's a very basic responsibility, but it comes from an attitude of honor. Let me explain why it's honor and not respect. And I want to make this absolutely clear, so please question me later if it, if it sounds unclear. Respect means this, according to the dictionary. Respect means to admire someone or something deeply as a result of their abilities, qualities, or achievements. That's what respect means, and I think that's still what respect means. Even though it's a, it's a kind of overused word. If I say that I respect you, there has to be something in you that I have judged to be worthy of respect. You've done something, you've achieved something, or even you you teach something or you stand for something that I approve of and agree with. And the reality in life is that you cannot, and I'll go as far as to say you must not respect everybody. Now that might sound controversial but just think about what I'm actually saying. You must not respect everybody because if somebody is, and I think most people would accept this, if somebody is an extremist jihadi, for example, are you going to tell me that you respect them, that you respect their belief? If somebody is a pedophile who wants to defend the right to be a pedophile, most people in our society would say, no, I don't respect that view and that opinion. So even our society still says there are some things that are not worthy of respect. If somebody has been a criminal all their life and destructive to others, a wife beater, whatever it may be, that person does not deserve your respect. But they do deserve your honor. Now the problem is the dictionary defines honor as showing great respect for someone or something, especially in public. So that doesn't really help us. But defining what the Bible means by a word, you don't go to the dictionary, you go to the Bible. So what does Peter mean when he says honor? Well, the first thing I want to say is he doesn't mean respect because look at what he says about the society that the Christians are living in. He says, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Before you knew Christ, you were ignorant. He says you were ransomed from futile ways, empty ways. He says that the people who look on at you are surprised when you don't join them in the flood of debauchery that they're involved in. Those are not words of respect. Let's be honest and say that a world and a worldview and a life without Christ is empty. It's futile. It is in ignorance. And there's debauchery that comes with it. Those things are not to be respected. But the people who live that way are to be honoured because Peter says honour everyone. Now why honour is more powerful than respect is because honour is about value. It's the same words that Peter uses in chapter 1 when he says your faith is more precious than gold. Your faith is of greater value than gold to God and it should be to you. It's the same word that Peter uses in chapter 1, verse 19, when he talks about the precious blood of Jesus. How much value do you put on the fact that Christ shed his blood for you? It's precious to us, isn't it? It's the same word that he uses in chapter 3 when he tells wives, or husbands rather, to show honor to their wives. To value them as Heirs with you of the grace of life. Now he calls them the weaker vessel. He's talking in physical terms that generally they are physically weaker, and he is saying, You must not, as a husband, take physical advantage of your wife because you're stronger, because she has the same value as you do as an heir of the life that is in Christ. We value our wives, our husbands, we value the blood of Christ, we value our faith, and we honor. And value everyone. So what value does a person have? But a person's value doesn't depend on their ability, does it? That's going to be important on Friday when I talk about ethics around life. A person's value does not depend on how disabled they are. It doesn't. You know, they're not of a lesser value because of that. Why? Because they are created by God. Loved by God. Because Christ died for them. A person's value doesn't depend upon their achievements, how many letters they have after their name. A person's value does not depend upon their behavior, how much sin they've committed, or how little. It doesn't matter. As a Christian, I am committed to honoring every person, whatever lifestyle they live, whatever labels they use to define themselves, whatever message they proclaim, whatever sins or crimes they have committed, I honor them because when I see them, I see somebody created by God, loved by God, died for by Christ. That's the starting point. And I think the profound thing here is that honor is stronger than respect. And in the world that we live in, the idea that you could honor somebody, which means that when they come away from an interaction with you, they think that person sees a value in me that is greater than any value I ever saw in myself. It's greater than the value our culture puts on me. It's greater than the value that even the the group of people that I identify with or as one of put on me. This person treats me with such honor, such value. I feel like I'm, I'm important, I'm special, I really matter to them. When you get that in combination with the fact that they also know that you don't agree with what they believe or what they do, that's an extremely profound thing. Because I think the culture that we live in can't compute that. It can't compute. That's why Tim Farron gets hounded or got hounded about his views on on homosexual activity. Because the idea that you could actually honor somebody and treat them with value whilst disagreeing with something in their lifestyle just doesn't compute. But in this grid, in these four directions, it's there. Let me just say something then about our response and then we'll have some, some questions. An answer, so please, I want to give some time to that. This is where the picture gets a little bit more complicated, but again, you can download it and ruminate over it. But I'm going to put in four words that crop up in First Peter, which say something about how we then respond to the world that we live in. So we have to fear God, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, honor the authorities. And the four S words are these serving, speaking, shaping, and suffering. And I think they belong in these four quarters. Because as Peter discusses them, they they arise from, well, what does it mean to fear God and honor everyone? That tension is actually seen most profoundly when we speak. Because we speak in a way that puts God in the right place and God's truth, but that still honors other people and serving is where we demonstrate most clearly that we honor people because we come alongside them and do good in love, but we also serve within the family, within the church. We love our brothers and sisters by serving them. Shaping, I'll explain what I mean by that, but it's shaping culture. How do we influence our culture and speak into our culture in a way that honors the church and its distinctive identity, but also honors or loves the church and also honors the authorities? And then suffering, that's the one we'd like to strike out, isn't it? But there will be times when fearing God and honoring the authorities means submitting to the authorities and suffering because of it. And we have to embrace these four things in the world that we increasingly live in. Serving inside the church, Peter says, as all of you have received gifts, you use them. The grace that God has given you to serve each other in the body. But he also says, live as people who are free, but don't use your freedom. You're not bound under laws, you are free. But your freedom is given to you to serve Christ, to serve God. And we do that by serving others in his name. So we serve inside the church and outside. We speak inside the church. Peter says, whoever speaks, speaks as if they're speaking the very oracles of God. In other words, when we teach in the church, we must teach in line with God's truth that God has revealed. An oracle is revealed from him. My job as a teacher is not to try and be new and novel, but to be faithful to the word of God, to scripture. And we're going to need more and more of that where we actually say, look, this is what the word of God says. It doesn't really matter what my opinion is or yours. Let's come together seeking to be under the authority of what he says. But then as we speak outside, and we saw this verse earlier, we're ready to give a defense for the hope that is in us with gentleness and the fear of God. But we shape kingdom values subverting the world. There's an awful lot, I think, that's being said nowadays about culture shaping. And about changing the world. There's there's a kind of message that goes out. Particularly to younger people. That says you can be a world changer. But I'm sorry to burst your bubble. But the chances are that you will not change the world. And in fact. I'm going to say that it's not your job to change the world. That's God's job. And he's quite capable of doing it as well. And he will do it ultimately one day when Christ comes again. Now that's not to say give up and stop trying to change things. Because of course you can change things for the people who you know and love and serve and speak truth to. But the burden of changing the world is not meant to be a burden that we bear. It's God's. We are his servants. You notice that? A servant doesn't go around boasting about how we're going to change this city. We're going to transform things. And I'm sorry, but there's too much boastfulness in the church We're going to transform this. We'll get this right where everybody else got it wrong. At last, a church that won't won't bore the pants off you, that's the kind of message that goes out, we will be the church that's going to change everything. It's nonsense, I'm sorry. It's dangerous. What is the key defining value of the kingdom of God? Well, you might say love and you would be pretty close, I think. But love, in the ancient world that Peter was writing into, everybody believed in love. They just had to redefine what love was in light of Christ. Truth is important too. But what was the value that set the early Christians apart from the culture that they lived in more than anything else? It was humility. Humility. And so Peter says, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he might lift you up in due time. It's not your job to lift yourself up or to lift the church up. It's God's job to lift you up in the right time, in the right place. It might not be until Christ comes back. It might be in this age. Your job is to humble yourself under the hand of God. And your job is to live humbly with other people. Andy Crouch makes this point in his book, Culture Making. He says, changing the world will require us to learn the one thing the language of changing the world usually lacks. Humility. To find not so much as bashfulness about our own abilities. It's not false humility that says we can't do anything and I can't do anything. But humility that is awed and quietly confident about God's ability. Do we believe that God is still in control? Do we think that the apparent decline of the church and of Christian influence in the West is a cause for despair because suddenly God has taken his eye off the ball? Let's restore our vision of the greatness and the glory of God. Let's humble ourselves before him and let's ask the question that Andy Crouch asks. How can we join his culture making? So yes, we need to make culture. Yes, we need to shape our society, our communities. Wherever we have influence, let's use it for the kingdom. If that's speaking publicly or if it's just relating to a group of friends or the person down your street or the, the community group that you're part of, let's be involved in those things. But let's do it without slowly and subtly, he says, giving in to the temptation to take God's place. We're not the saviour of the world. And the church is not the saviour of the world. God is, Christ is, and we simply bear testimony faithfully to him And we leave the results to him. Submission. I said shaping is the S word, but really the S word that Peter uses is submission. And it's there four times in Peter's letter. And he says, be subject to every human institution, subject in society, subject in the workplace, servants, be subject to your masters, subject in the family, wives, be subject to your husbands, and fourthly, be subject in the church. You, are, you who are younger, be subject to the elders in the church. And I'm going to say to you that if we in the church want to, dis, to display a genuinely distinctive culture to the world, there is nowhere where that will be seen more clearly than in our submission in these relationships. People who not because they think they are less than the other person, because remember, the value is the same. Your faith is precious whether you're an elder or a member of the church. Your faith is precious whether you are a husband or a wife. Your faith is precious whether you are a master or a servant, the boss or the worker. Your faith is precious whether you are in authority or under authority. It's nothing to do with your value. You do not show your value by fighting for your rights and maintaining your autonomy and your independence. We'll talk more about autonomy tomorrow because it's a key issue. But you show your honor of Christ by subjecting yourself to others. And all of us have to do it in at least some of our relationships. (laughs) And that is profoundly countercultural. It was for Peter's first readers. It is for us. Humility leads to submission. It starts with submission under God's mighty hand and then it works out in all of our relationships. And then fourthly and lastly, suffering. Suffering is something we're going to have to embrace. And First Peter says an awful lot about it. We could spend a whole morning just talking about what it says about that. But Peter says, look, Christ suffered unjustly. He says, if you do good and suffer for it, you endure this and you endure it. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. God sees it, God notices it, and God values it when you suffer for doing what is right. Peter has a lot to say about don't suffer for doing what's wrong, right? Our job is not to go out and make murders of ourselves, be as offensive as we can so that people will throw as many bricks at us as they can, But there will be times when even though you are doing good, you are loving people and serving them, but also speaking truth, they will not distinguish those things. They will condemn you and judge you and abuse you verbally, and you will lose out. But when you do this, it is gracious in God's sight. You're following in the footsteps of Christ. He committed no sin when he was reviled. He didn't revile in return. He didn't strike back. It's another very countercultural thing. We don't stand up for ourselves and take revenge. Our job is not to defend ourselves anyway. It's to testify to the fact that we have a Lord. And I believe what I believe about the issues of the day, not because it's better for me or easier for me or it's the way I was brought up, but because I have a Lord who redefines life and the world and I am subject to him. And if I have to follow in his footsteps by suffering, so be it. And that suffering may mean verbal abuse. It may mean physical abuse in some situations. In our context, it's more likely to mean disadvantage in employment. I think it's unlikely to mean martyrdom in the sense it meant for the first Christians who were killed for their faith. But it may mean what I call professional martyrdom. And I think the day is coming when it will be increasingly difficult in some professions. The two that come to my mind first are teaching and medicine maybe because I've been a medic and I know a lot of teachers but I think those are two where it will be particularly difficult in future to maintain I'm not saying we withdraw from them but I'm saying that there will be situations where Christians will fall on the wrong side of the judgments that are made and it may be that martyrdom will be necessary. And we're going to have to love each other a lot better as the church because the church is going to have to provide the safety net for those people who suffer in their profession and maybe can no longer stay in it because their conscience and their faithfulness to the Lord doesn't allow them to. But you know what? That provides us a whole new opportunity to be the church and to love one another the way the early Christians did, and to be creative about how we respond, and to say that we're not actually dependent on the state anyway to define anything for us, because we are citizens of heaven. We fear God, we honor everyone, we honor the authorities, and we love one another, and we're in this journey together, and we must keep those four things together. So, honor everyone, what does that mean for you? What does it mean for you to love the church more, to fear God more, to honor the authorities in your situation as you serve, speak, submit, and suffer for the sake of Christ? That's trying to lay out the landscape, specific issues tomorrow and on Friday. But just to remind you of that web address and then to say if you have questions, please either verbally now, that would be great, or uh, afterwards I'm very happy to chat to you as well. But hopefully that's given you some help as a kind of grid over to you for responses. Thank you. So we have a few moments. I'm happy to go a little bit longer. If you need to leave to get children and so on, I do understand that too. But but um, we have a few moments even before a quarter to. So what? Any questions or responses or comments? Thank you. Yes. So the 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 question just for the benefit of the recording uh is um and for those who maybe didn't hear, but one of the challenges if the church is going to support people through this who are suffering and so on is that we don't speak with a united voice. Um and the media portrays that and so on. I, I have to agree with you on that. I think yes, there is disunity in how we speak, but I think we we can't afford to have that and we need to think much more deeply about these issues. So I think I think that unfortunately that may mean and this is not something that I want to promote or encourage but, but I think these things are going to become dividing lines for the church I think they have to I don't want them to. I mean, who does? But it's not It's not that the church, it's not that the word of God is changing or or God's vision of what is good, right, and best for people is changing. Now, that is, of course, that's always a challenge in real relationships. How do you show honor to somebody when you're saying, actually, But but what is good for you is something that seems wrong to you? But unless we're doing that, unless we're saying, actually, God has authority over that. So I think... For me, that, that tends to always come back to the question of, the, of where we look for authority. And I think the history of the church tells us that Christians at times will look for that in experience. Others will look for it in the word of God. I, I think the answer to that is to say the faith has been entrusted once for all to the saints. The apostles have recorded that in light of Christ in the New Testament. We must be faithful to that. So to the question of authority, where do we go to resolve those issues? Are we consistently biblical in our worldview? You know, sometimes the way that we're talking, I think if we just simply stopped and said, could we imagine Paul and Peter discussing this issue this way? Honestly? Honestly? And I know our time is different and our context is different, but it's not really that different because as far as I can see, I've never been a big fan of evolution anyway, but we certainly haven't evolved in the last 2,000 years or changed fundamentally as human beings so that the problems and issues of our heart are different than they were then. It's the same issues that we're facing that Peter was facing. That's why I find First Peter so fresh and relevant. And and I think we can get clouded into thinking these are new issues or different These are the issues the early church faced, and they took a clear stance. And yes, they faced all sorts of challenges and problems within the church, but the apostles were writing consistently, but this is what it is to be faithful to Christ. So personally, I think scripture is sufficient to answer those debates. But I accept it's very hard when the church seems disunited, when those who profess to be Christian take a different line. Um, But that's going to be part of the suffering, perhaps. (laughs) I'm confident within that, that Christ, faithfulness to Christ is what is what all of us need to do. He's God is the Father who judges impartially. So let's entrust ourselves to him and be confident in him. Does that help at least? I mean, I take your point. I don't have an immediate answer. Other than that, we need to speak more clearly and... and There's a whole question of interpretation, I think is the point. And I accept that again, but but I I personally, and I say this as somebody who teaches theology, and I I mean, clearly we face that all the time. I think there are things in Scripture that are open to different interpretations, and legitimately so. There are things that aren't. And if, you know, either we have confidence that when God spoke, he spoke clearly, at least on the things that we really need to know, Then the question in hermeneutics or in our interpretation of the text really, I think, becomes what do we believe about God and how he communicates and Scripture. So, you know, I think once you get into those debates, it generally comes down to the question of how much you believe that the writers of Scripture were influenced by their culture and experience or how much were they actually recording what God had had revealed to them. I believe it's the second. That's what they claimed themselves. So I take that on its own terms, as the church has done throughout history. So we test those interpretations by the text itself. What I've tried to do in First Peter is interpret Scripture with Scripture, you see. Not to just jump on a verse, but to say, actually, within Peter, how does he define what it means to honor or love? Because I could say, we're to love the, the brotherhood. So I love you, therefore I'll not turn my back on you when you do. But love includes forgiveness and unity of mind do you see what I mean by Peter's own definition likewise how do I honor people I could say well that means I'll not speak against what they say but Peter himself says they're into debauchery their lives are futile you see I I look at that as a doctor and I simply say is it loving if I said to my patient you know you're going to be fine when I know that they've got a terminal illness the truth is not always convenient it's not always easy but it is always better but then that's because as a christian i believe in truth i believe god is true and god has revealed truth and we can know truth and those beliefs come from the text of scripture itself so i accept your point but i don't think scripture is open to limitless interpretation and i think we'll talk more about that tomorrow and and on friday on specific issues does that at least we may or may not agree? But you know, it's sorry. Any any other questions? Again, time is marching on, so please do leave if you need to. Hi, that that's a very good question. So the question, as I understand it, again is is as Protestants as Evangelicals, maybe particularly in Ireland, particularly in the north of Ireland, we have been told historically that honouring the emperor is is patriotism. It's going to war for for the country for the empire. Um, the arch again might say honour the king, honour the queen, it, it's you know, loyalty to, to the crown. I think it's very significant that Peter, of course Peter's writing in a different context, the nation state didn't really exist in the way that it exists today. I happen to think, and this is a whole subject in itself, that nationalism in all of its forms is generally a destructive force. And in Northern Ireland we have two competing nationalisms. So we call one of those nationalism, we call the other one unionism or loyalism. But I think they're both competing nationalisms. And Christians are never called to loyalty to a nation state in Scripture. They're not even called to loyalty to the authorities. They are called to submit to the authorities. And it's the same in in Romans where Paul writes about this in Romans 13. So it's never unquavered loyalty. And it's certainly never putting loyalty to the state above loyalty to Christ. It's God that you fear. It's the brotherhood of the church that you love. So your commitment to the church comes above your commitment to the state, and the church must never be subject to the state. I mean, that's a these, these are big debates in theology and in historical theology especially. But we sub- submit to it. But submitting means you speak where you have freedom to speak. You speak even where you don't, even though you might be punished for it. You accept that it is good to live in an orderly society, even if those order... Those in authority don't use that perfectly, as they never do. I think in a democracy, some of us may be called to be in positions of authority, and that's a challenging place to be. So we pray for our politicians. We pray for those in authority, as Paul tells Timothy. Um, We pray for them. We submit ourselves to them, but we don't have to agree with them. And I think we need to be more creative. I think, as I say it historically, the biggest challenge is the church revolutionized the state in the Western world, particularly since the rise of Protestantism, and even before that actually in Catholicism. But there was a kind of blip, if you like, in, in medieval Catholicism. Early, The early church revolutionized things in generally in good ways. If you even take the 19th century, it was the church that really pioneered education, developed it. Um, and healthcare as well. As one friend said to me in London, where he's based, all of the big hospitals in London are saints something or others. They were Christian institutions. We then gave those things over to the state at a time when the state agreed with a broadly Christian worldview. Now what we have is a state that controls those things that is out of line with that. And the time will come, and maybe is there in some places where we need to think creatively about at what point do we have to say, actually... We need to be creative and recreate Christian alternatives to this. Now, I'm not saying withdraw from the world, but we need to be creative as well. And if we really find ourselves at a point where the values are so far removed, maybe we need to. But as that friend put to me, and I found it very challenging, that's going to mean we have to get out of dependency on the state. And particularly, as his point was, we have to get out of debt as Christians. And he was not just talking about churches not going into debt to build buildings and so on, which I think is part of it, but also individual Christians not being in debt, perhaps even mortgages and so on. Can we think creatively as a community of Christians to say, rather than us being so dependent on the financial systems that we're tied up in, are there ways that we can maintain independence and show an alternative, a Christian alternative? That's challenging. That's going to need creative people with gifts that I don't have, but some of you may have but i see th- I see that as exciting let's let's recover that confidence and that excitement. I'm not saying by doing that we'll change the world. That's up to God, but we can be more faithful perhaps. Does that probably raises a whole lot of other issues, but yeah again, please feel free to leave. I won't be in the least offended because time is up, but I do want to give folks time if they need it. So any last question before we just again, please feel free to come and chat to me but uh, maybe no more public questions at this point. So if you're interested, tomorrow's gender and sexuality, Friday we'll be talking about early life, so abortion and so on and contraception and end-of-life is- issues. Uh, if folks haven't been here today, they should still be able to understand those. I will refer to the grid that I've shown today, but you know it should make sense even without that. So do encourage others to come if you think they can benefit from it. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you.